0: G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope, and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au.
1: Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast per, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have the charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps, and to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by kuris to all the king's provinces, with the instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion.
0: Alright, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Guy. Joy and privilege as always to serve as the pastor of City on a Hill, a movement now of 10 churches across six cities, all united in our mission to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Here at City on a Hill, we believe that Jesus isn't just true news, but good news of great joy for all who believe. Uh, Speaking of good news, Today, this morning, we are joining live via broadcast with City on Hill, Melbourne East. Uh, big shout out to Nick, the team. I like to clap. So look at this. I uh, love you guys and uh, so encouraged by the light that you are shining and that we can get together and open God's word together. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, my son came to me with some uh, breaking news. He says, Dad, guess what? They're filming Batman 2. Now, I don't know what floats your boat, uh, but for me, this gets my heart racing. Ever since a little kid, I have loved the story of Batman. But i got to confess that the Batman I grew up with looks very different to the Batman that you see uh, on the screen today. I don't know, by show of hands, if anyone saw the most recent Batman came out in 2022. Uh, like two of us. That's awesome. Um, Great, great movie. I mean, the throwback to Nirvana was worth the price of admission. But I've got to confess, it was dark. Like, really dark. I don't know if you've seen the evolution. (laughs) Right? Like, the Batman I grew up with is colorful outfits. The villains are cartoonish. The fights are almost comical. But of course, as you can see, the world has changed. We have changed. It's almost like our our culture has awoken up to the realization that evil is no joke. Whether we're, you know, considering wars, conflicts, protests in our city. Uh, whether we're talking about addictions and domestic violence, whether we're talking about corporate and political corruption, compromise in the church, whether we're talking about the epidemic of loneliness and mental health, whether we're talking about our own insecurities, our own shadows, and our own sin, uh, there's an awareness today that that evil is no joke evil is is real it's it's dark it's it's pervasive and it's not just that we see and and feel this darkness it's it's actually that this this darkness pushes and prods us to ask big questions big questions about the world big questions about life and indeed big questions about our faith and And I want to start here because when you turn the page into chapter three in the book of Esther, we're we're witnessing, I've got to acknowledge this, we're we're witnessing an evolution of darkness and evil. You know, the book opens, doesn't it, in chapter one with this royal feast, this pomp and ceremony, there's light, there's color, there's fun, there's music, and yet it doesn't take long before the cracks begin to show. You know, we're introduced, aren't we, to King Xerxes, this powerful but somewhat narcissistic, violent ruler who goes off the handle because his wife Vashti won't parade before his drunken mates. Then in in chapter two, which is where we were last week, we see the king kind of send out his men to find this new queen. And so like they're armed with this decree from the king to go into everybody's home looking for young virgins to take them almost captive into the harem you know and it's there that the favor is kind of upon Esther and she's hand picked by the king but this isn't a disney princess story we know what he did to the last queen We know how unhinged and fragile this man and his men are. We know that amidst all the money and sex and power is this dark, evil, malicious, violent underbelly. (coughs) And so if you're tracking in this story, you're like, well, where's this going? Where will this evil and darkness move next? So if you've got a Bible, let's let's find out together. Come with me to chapter 3, verse 1, as things begin to dial up. Beginning in verse 1, the narrator says, Now after these things, King Ahasuerus, otherwise known as Xerxes, promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, do you remember the closing scene in last week's episode? After Esther's inauguration and feast, there was a closing scene where we were introduced to a man named Mordecai. And and who is Mordecai? Mordecai is the uncle of Esther, uh, who served as her adoptive uh, father. And she'd been raising Esther, and he's a public servant working kind of in the area of the king, and he just so happens to be by the king's gate when he hears two of the king's very own servants conspiring against the king. Turns out they're fed up with his anger and his antics, and they're they're plotting his assassination. And Mordecai hears that, and what does he do with that news? Well, he pens a note and he sends that on through to Esther, warn the king warn the king of these two guys and the king explores the you know claim and exposes their plot and he has those two men hung on the gallows and then we're told at the very end of chapter two that he he noted Mordecai was the man who had saved his life he notes this in his royal book and so when you open the pages of chapter three what we're expecting at this moment is some kind of royal reward We're expecting that Mordecai is going to be acknowledged by the king and and perhaps even promoted. But actually, that's not what happens. We see that another man has been promoted and not just any other man, Haman. Haman is promoted by the king. Now, for those of you here in week one of the series, you'll remember me saying that at the Purim Festival, whenever the name Haman is read from the book of Esther, the kids and adults stamp their feet and make loud, passionate boos. So Melbourne East and here in Melbourne, I'm going to give this one more go. Let me hear your most passionate boo. Yeah, come so naturally to this church. <laughs> Why is it that that Haman uh, conjures up this kind of rage? Uh, Well, this is where the plot thickens. Check out verse 2. So all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so demanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow or pay homage. Now, I appreciate that in Australian culture, the practice of bowing is not particularly common. Uh, It's not particularly common. Aussies aren't big on showing honor to people in authority. Uh, Most Aussies, we would confess, have tall poppy syndrome, uh, which means we have a love-hate relationship with authority. And by that, I mean we love to hate people in authority. But of course, in so many other parts of the world, is to be respected, and one of the ways you can do that is by bowing. And of course, the higher up the hands and the lower the bow, the greater sense of honor you show. And, and Mordecai is used to that kind of recognition. The king has demanded it, ordered it. Wherever he goes, people bow. They show him respect. Of course, that is until he walks past Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow. And the question, the obvious question as you're reading your Bible is well, why is that? Why is it that Mordecai kind of stands his ground? Now, most people assume that this is religiously motivated. You know, so just as Daniel refused to bow before the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar, people would assume that what Mordecai is doing is saying, no, no, I worship one God and one God alone. The problem with that interpretation, however, is that Haman isn't presented to us as God. He's not claiming to be God like Nebuchadnezzar, uh and, and in fact the king's decree is is not actually that extraordinary here it's not a, a deliberate attack on his faith or a call to even compromise his faith in fact we can read in other parts of the bible that uh jewish people did bow at certain points to different officials and kings and and, and as such so it wasn't strictly prohibited in jewish law for someone to bow to another person and if that's the case i'm convinced it is well Why is it that Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman? Well, did you hear the explanation in verses 3 and 4? Interestingly, we're told that the king's servants kind of come up to Mordecai and go, Mate, what's the deal? You're not bowing. You should be bowing. He's like, I'm not going to bow. Why aren't you going to bow? And then he reveals, I'm a Jew. The reason I'm not going to bow is because I am a Jew. Why is that relevant, you ask? Well, interestingly, in the opening verse, when Haman is introduced, we're not just told that he's an official. The narrator is very clear to underscore that it's Haman, the agagite. Now, that detail is, I, is completely lost on all of us here today. But to the original audience, that spelt Trouble. If this were a movie, the thunder would have struck in that moment and a cool breeze would have gone through the set. So by way of background, Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were notorious for their persistent and repeated attacks against God's people, Israel. They were the guys who kind of stormed over the hill when Israel came out of Egypt, going towards the promised land, swords in hand, violence in their eyes. And they were repeatedly, continuously, constantly trying to bring down Israel and wipe them out. And it's actually why God himself had told Moses to tell Israel that you know, he will forever be at war with the Amalekites, all of which to say they weren't just another people group, but violent, hardened enemies of God's people. And so Mordecai says, No, I will not bow, I will not pay homage. And how does Haman respond? Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. The people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So what happens? Haman is triggered. Uh, In fact, the Hebrew is stronger, isn't it? He's filled with fury. And what do fragile men do when they've been dishonored? When they've had their pride pushed, they lash out in revenge. Revenge. Just as the king expelled Vashti, so Haman sets his eyes on destruction. Check out verse 8. Haman approaches the king saying, There's a certain people scattered around and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws. So it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may be put into the king's treasury. How does the king respond? Verse 10, the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hammedatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Who's the driving force in this genocide? It's Haman. But I don't think we can go easy on King Xerxes in this moment. You will know that as a king, you have a job. And that job is to restrain evil. It's to protect people from evil. It's to push back evil you have a job and that is to pursue truth and to fight for what is good right as the great philosopher once said uncle ben with great power comes great responsibility right it's a proverb from the book of marvel right but what did the king do with his power he hands over his ring and says, do as you please. Haman, I mean, I mean, put yourself, he, he, he can't believe his luck. I'm going to get my day. This, this evil idea in his head is now enshrined in law. And he's got all these men together and said, all right, now go. I want you to go out into homes and into the cities and I want you to plaster This propaganda all over the city instructing the people of Susa, instructing the people of Persia that they are to, verse 13, destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews. Without exception, young, old, men, women, children. It's to be done on a single day. Could you imagine what it would have been like to be in Susa and to see that poster being plastered all over the city? To see this decree of death. Could you imagine what it would have been like to be among the people of God in this moment? to be going about your everyday work, your everyday business, to be picking up the kids from school, to be landing that business deal and then to look out and see this and to recognize that in a matter of moments, your friends and family and neighbors, they're marking you out. A sense of terror that the world has turned against you. Verse 15 The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. The city of Susa was thrown into confusion. What an ending to this scene. The city has descended into darkness. There's this wave of terror and fear and chaos filling the streets. All the while, Haman and the king are reclining on their leather couches, drinking a bottle of wine, toasting to their power and their control. So as this chapter ends, you know, we're asking all kinds of questions. We're asking, well, what's going to happen to the Jews How will Mordecai and his people respond to this wave of terror? And and what's the king going to do when he discovers that his wife and queen is also a Jew? Well, to find that out, you'll need to come back next week for part four in our series in the book of Esther. But before we're done, um, I've been reflecting on this chapter, praying, and, and there are a few observations that I think are helpful and relevant and important for us to unpack together. I think the first is in reading this chapter... We can't um, escape the explicit hostility and violence that is targeted directly against the Jews. You just can't avoid that when you're reading this chapter. Uh, A few weeks back, I was talking with a friend, Dean, who's Jewish himself, raised in a Jewish home, served in a Jewish synagogue, now serves in a bunch of different Jewish community organizations. And he shared with me how the story of Esther, interestingly, not only features uh, in their Purim celebrations, but actually is central in Holocaust education. You know, as people, uh, generations grapple with evil and this dark moment in history at at a time when at least six million Jews were, were put to death, Uh, The story of Esther serves as a key and and significant voice. And it's a voice that not only explains the past, but also speaks into our present. Uh, As Jewish people prepare for this year's Purim festival, many have made connections between Esther and the most recent terrorist attacks. Many of you know that um, Hamas had enshrined in their covenant uh, a clear objective to jihad and complete destruction of Israel. And the world looked on in horror on the 7th of October, where we saw hundreds of uh, thousands of people uh, attacked, uh, music festivals. Hamas terrorists diving on in, uh, people killed, murder, rape, uh, hostages taken, carnage, destruction. And while we looked on in sadness at that great evil, what took many by surprise was almost an immediate support of those attacks and and this rise in anti-Semitism. In the days after the attack we had neo-Nazis going on to trains in Australia asking people are you Jewish We had Jewish schools marked with threats We had people crying out in the very early days after crying out that we would boycott Jewish organizations and businesses I have a good friend uh, Mark Leach who serves as an Anglican minister in Sydney Uh, He himself is Christian. He himself is Jewish. His mum fled the Holocaust in 1938. And just two days after the terrorist attacks by Hamas, he felt compelled to turn up to a pro-Palestinian rally in Sydney. Uh, He went to pray. He went to observe, but became saddened by these cries from the people, these angry chants, kill the Jews, gas the Jews. As a bit of a lone voice in that crowd, he felt called to stand with his people. He actually unfurled uh, an Israel flag, only to be surrounded by a mob of angry men who just chased him through the heart of Sydney and even threatened his life. Police intervened. It was terrible. Now, I'm aware that the conflict between Palestine and Israel is complex and far-reaching. I'm not going to assume the motive of everyone who is protesting on the streets of Melbourne. I'm not here to make a statement on Israel's claim to the land and I'm aware that there are multiple injustices at play on both sides. You also have the right to criticise Benjamin Netanyahu's policy on the West Bank settlement. And you have the right to voice concern at the Israeli Defence Force's use of force in Gaza. But, but let's be clear. Nobody has the right to attack or to threaten people who are Jewish or to cheer on a destruction of a nation. As the people of God who serve a Jewish Messiah, we must acknowledge that all anti-Semitism is wrong. Any and all racism and prejudice is wrong. Now, I'm aware that the world wants you to pick a side. Are you pro-Israel? Are you pro-Palestine? But the truth is, we are pro-life and anti-death. We're against murder. We're against rape. We're against politic, political corruption. We're against corporate greed. We're against the theft of land. We're against the theft of people. We are a people who are passionately convinced and for life. We're for peace we're for repentance we're for reconciliation and that is what is so heartbreaking in today's text because as you read this chapter you can't help but see and indeed feel that evil has the upper hand here are the people of God trying to work out their life. Here are the people of God trying to work out their faith. And yet here in the book of Esther, the world is closing in on them. And that's where we need to acknowledge not only the political and cultural dimension of this book, but, but also the spiritual um, for those in Melbourne, you may recall uh, Stephanie in the opening uh, week of this series kind of laid out a bit of a storyline of the, of the Bible and God's promise uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Nick Coombs did the same thing last week uh, in, in his uh, great message uh, on Esther chapter 2 at Melbourne East, where we learned together that the God had made a promise to Abraham. God was coming into this broken world, into this dark world, to bring healing and salvation and life. And he chose Abraham and said, you're going to create a family. And through that nation, those people, my law will be revealed. My love will be revealed. I'm going to bring life. And so when Haman sharpens the sword against Mordecai and the Jews... He's not only attacking a family, he's actually threatening the very purpose, plan and promise of God. And that's crucial in understanding the book of Esther. There is a political and cultural conflict at play, but also a deeper spiritual conflict at play. And where did that conflict start? I can tell you it didn't start with Haman and Mordecai. This conflict goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You know, just as Haman is filled with pride, so the serpent enters, intoxicated with his own power and pride. Just as Haman spurts out deceit, so the serpent, the evil one, the devil, is the father of lies. Just as Haman... Sought the destruction of God's people in Susa, so the devil comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And you see that evil, don't you, in Genesis, and we see that evil in the Book of Esther, and we see that evil all the way through the New Testament, the early Church, and if we are on a city on a hill, let's we see that evil in our world today. The Apostle Paul says guys, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of, heaven, uh, forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so what does that mean for you and I today? What does that mean for us here in Melbourne, for you at Melbourne East? What does that mean for us? Well, at the very least, it means we should not be surprised when we face chaos, and opposition in our life. Peter says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In Thessalonians, it says, don't be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well we were destined for them. And I remember a few, few years ago now, when our Melbourne staff team moved into our office in Carlton. The office we had previously was fine, but it was kind of running out of space. Uh, we actually had no natural light, no heating, no cooling. So we were glad to get out of there and get into a, a, a better home for us. And I, I never forget the very first day that we were there, we had a prayer meeting on the third level up the top, looking out over the city, and a real sense that God was on the move. And a real desire to ask for God's provision, his blessing, and indeed his protection. Because here's what we know, the devil doesn't like the church moving forward. Here's what we know, the devil doesn't like the gospel going out. Here's what we know, the devil doesn't like unity and momentum in the church. And so we prayed against that. And yet I was reminded of that conflict because no sooner did I finish the prayer that I went downstairs and realized that a thief had come in and stolen my bike. And I cried. The very next day, Alice, who works with me, works in our team, was coming up to the office, saw that the door was ajar, and then this guy came bolting out the front, and she'd intercepted yet another robbery in our place. Most of the stuff was we're still secure inside. But it was this frightening moment for Alice, frightening moment for us all. Two days later, I'm, we're all back here. I'm preaching on the book of Judges. And just before I go up to preach, Alice shows me her phone with a message. We've been robbed again. This time, they'd cleaned us dry. They took everything. Team's heartbroken. Some of our team go to the office to kind of pick up the pieces to survey the scene. I finish the services here, pull out my laptop, get on, you know, zoom on into a kind of a, a meeting with them, the guys in the office, I'm here. And again, we just kind of end that time together praying. Praying. And I kid you not, I close the laptop, I look down, what do I see? My bag that was at my feet, stolen. <laughs> I'm not making this up. I couldn't believe it. As I'm praying, Lord, give us courage to, you know, the devil's prowling around. (laughs) My backpack is stolen from my feet. (laughs) Like the good news is my laptop was out. I actually had my phone with me. In my bag was really my Bible and a sermon on the judgment of God. (laughs) I've just lived off the image of this thief, like reading that on a train to who knows where. It's just, you know, now you could look at all of that and say, whoa, what a bad, you know, sequence of bad luck, right? But I think as a Christian, you, you, you start to discern patterns and, and you start to recognize that actually maybe the like we know the evil one, what comes to distract, comes to rob us of joy, comes to get us off mission, prowling around. Remember the warning Jesus gave his disciples. Look out. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Um, And that's not just about losing bikes and losing property. Like, that's serious. The devil has a plan and a purpose for your life, and it's destruction. The devil has a plan and a purpose for your life, and an army of angels trying to bring you down. Now, I confess, to be really honest with you, it's been a hard week for me. Um, on Monday, uh, I got news about a friend uh, who serves as a worship pastor in a large church in the States uh, who's been stood down on account of uh, historic and repeated patterns of hidden sin. know this guy well, love and appreciate and just the sadness of sin. The hurt to family, to church, to friends. This off the back of news of another guy who, serving as a lead pastor in a church, stood down on account of his sin. Do I have all the perspectives, the angles? Do we know? Of course not. Um, And am I saying that I'm without sin? Of course not. I mean, that's the point. Sin touches us all. It touches my life, it touches your life, and the evil one is looking for a window to get on in and take you all the way down. Sin sucks. It destroys people. It destroys relationships. It destroys communities. It destroys so much. So what does that mean for us? In a world where we're battling the world, the flesh, the devil, what does it mean? It means we are to guard our life and doctrine. We are to watch our life and doctrine closely. Jesus himself said, be on guard against the evil one who prowls around looking for someone to devour. One of the moments that I admire in today's text is Mordecai's resolve to make a stand. Now, I appreciate there's some distance between Mordecai's context and our context today. I appreciate that, acknowledge that. But there's something about his defiance that inspires me. There is something about his courage to own his identity and remain true to his values that inspire me and should serve as inspiration for us. You know, maybe you are here today and you yourself know that you are caught in a web of sin. And you have been bowing down to that pleasure, bowing down to that addiction for years. And today, God is calling you today by his power and his grace to make a stand. To say enough is enough. I'm going to resist this. I will not pay homage to this sin anymore. Maybe you're here today and you are consumed by the lies of the enemy. You've allowed the lies of the enemy to get stuck and played on your head. And it's, and it's self-condemning and it's self-loathing. And yet that's the tape, the record, the song that's playing over and over and over. And God, in the power of his word, is saying, you need to make a stand. In his power, in his grace, you can't pay homage. You can't be honoring that voice anymore. You need to make a stand and say no. Maybe you're here today and you are drawn to a relationship that you know is not good for you. Maybe you're in one right now and you're crossing boundaries and you're compromising your faith. And God, in the power of His Spirit, is calling you to take hold of His power, take hold of His grace, and say, No, I will not bow down to that anymore. I will make a stand. Maybe you're in a workplace or university and there is so much pressure on you to compromise your values and to put your faith on the back burner. And you can see this agenda calling you to bow down, calling you to honour what you should not honour. And God, by the power of His Spirit, is calling you today to draw on his power, to draw on his grace and to make a stand. Listen, being a Christian isn't easy. Christianity isn't just a walk in the park for people who want to go through the motions. Isn't it? We're not just here to tick a few religious boxes and get on with our day. No, one of the metaphors throughout the Bible is that we are at war. And that calls for courage, that calls for perseverance, that calls for us to make a stand. As the band comes up and we prepare to respond, I I do want to leave you with a word of encouragement. Uh, I said from the outset, didn't I, that it's a very, very dark chapter. But whenever we're in God's word, we are never without hope. Whenever we're in God's word, we're never without hope. Did you notice that when the king's scribes gathered together to seal the decree of death, we're actually given a date? We're told it took place on the 13th day of the month, first month of Nisan. Now, why is that important? Because it just so happens to fall on the eve of Passover. And what is Passover. Passover is a celebration of God's rescue. Think about it. Against all odds, God came to Israel in their hour of need. And do you remember the centerpiece of his rescue? God called Israel to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. So that on the night of their rescue, God's destruction came against Egypt, but he didn't just destroy their enemies, he set them free. For all who had trust in God, for all who were living under the blood of the Lamb, there was freedom, there was celebration, there was life, there was hope. And of course, for you and I today, living on the other side of the cross, we see how God was preparing Israel, preparing us for the fulfillment of his promise, the arrival of his Messiah, the coming of the true and perfect King, the one John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that in Jesus, we who live under the blood of the Lamb, are set free. Because where we are unrighteous, Jesus is righteous. Where we have compromised, he was faithful. When he was offered wealth and kingdoms from the devil, Jesus did not bow. He stood firm. He lived a righteous life on our behalf as your substitute and as our perfect substitute, as the blameless lamb. This Jesus went to a cross on our behalf to die that decree of death that we deserved. He didn't retaliate. He didn't retreat. He came before his father and said, not my will, but your will be done. You know what Jesus did on the cross? Disarmed the power of the evil one. That sin that the devil tries to hold onto and pull you down has been cut in the name and power of Jesus. So that in Jesus, there's forgiveness. In Jesus, there's new life. In Jesus, there's hope and glory. We don't live in death. We live in life. Isn't it interesting how in the book of Esther chapter 3, this decree of death marks households and the king's men are sent out to put this decree of death out. If you're in Jesus today, we live under a decree of life. And it's our joy, it's our privilege, it's our purpose and conviction to herald that life. Because here at City on a Hill, we're all about knowing this Jesus And making this Jesus known. I love that quote from Charles Spurgeon who said, The preaching of Christ is the whip that flogs the devil. The preaching of Christ is the thunderbolt, the sound of which makes all hell shake. City on a hill, let me ask, do you want to make a difference in this world? Do you want to push back? darkness with light do you want to see people rescued from death and saved for all eternity follow jesus trust jesus preach proclaim worship jesus let's pray father we thank you for our time in your word And as we wrestle with the darkness and evil that we see and experience, I pray, Lord God, that you would break through with the power of your light. Thank you that in Jesus, death won't have the last word. Thank you that in Jesus, there is life now and a life to come, a life of victory, of healing, of restoration and hope. And we look forward to that day and pray, Lord God, that we would walk in step with your will and your spirit and your life. We pray this for our good and your glory in the name of Jesus.